I want to begin by by dating myself a little bit. Uh, I remember in the 1980s, growing up, I was about a a teenager, and there was a a show on television called That's Incredible. How many of you remember this television show? Some of you, some of you not. Um, This show was reality TV before there was reality TV. Um, Fran Targington, John Davidson, Kathy Lee Crosby hosted the show where they brought in all these different people and stuff of things that people could do, and they just wanted to highlight them. Um, you know, and, and they ranged from a, a little child who could bowl at the age of three and he was in this league, or people who could do Rubik's Cubes really fast, or maybe even some sentimental piece about somebody who had a disability but has overcome that in some ways to you know be able to play football on one leg or to be able to walk with no legs you know artificial limbs or something you know very encouraging along those lines uh, sometimes um, it was informational some great medical breakthrough that, uh, that was on that they showed uh, sometimes they they put forth um, people who had just special, unique abilities. Um, you know, maybe David Letterman's, oh, I don't even know, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't watch Letterman at all, but I, stupid human tricks or something like that. Sometimes some things like that, um, they do. Um, you know, blowing smoke into soap bubbles. I mean, little things like that. Sometimes it's outright dangerous. Uh, they had one time where a guy jumped out of a, an airplane, a skydiver, when he was handcuffed and straightjacketed. So he's got some time before he gets down. And maybe this television show really made an impact on me because it, um, it, it made a stir in my hometown where I was because there was a, a certain high school senior who was interested in psychology, studied B.F. Skinner and behaviorism and all of this. And um, he studied that through rewards and punishments, you could get laboratory rats to do about anything possible. And so he trained some laboratory rats to like put this ball through a hoop and so kind of like play basketball put a ball through a hoop get a little you know food put a ball through a hoop get a little bit of food and so that's incredible I thought that was really good and so they brought their whole entourage I remember in high school it said why don't you come this night they're going to film it so they give a big crowd you know like this basketball game between these rats and things like that and I remember they even hired uh, Bill Baker had Bill Baker come he's the play-by-play guy for the NIU Huskies and uh, so he kind of did a play-by-play of these rats going on and I remember it was a big thing at, at high school when I was when I was there, um, that's incredible. One of the things I remember about this TV show was the chant that the audience always gave at the end of a segment. The segment was was winding down, and then the audience would say, "That's incredible, right?" Let, let's let's practice, everybody. Here, one, two, three. That's incredible. Well, today, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to First Peter chapter two. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And this text has got some incredible things in it. In fact, really, the aim of my message after I'm done is I want you all to say, that's incredible. I I just can't believe it. That is amazing. And so I, I want to practice. I want to read verses 9 and 10. And when I'm done, I want us all to say, that's incredible. Okay, I'll give you cues in my hands, and let's say that's incredible after it's all done. You ready? Here we go. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's incredible. Now, you didn't really say that like you meant it. In the show, you know, it's kind of like those applause things. They said, that's incredible. Let's try it again, all right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's incredible! Now, how many of you really think this is incredible? Some of you might be saying, I don't even understand these words. What is this about? Why is it that these words are so incredible? Why is it that I would entitle my message this morning, That's Incredible? Well, it has to do with these six descriptions of us. You can see it right there. First, we're a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for God's own possession. We are the people of God. And we are those who have received mercy. Now, what makes these words so astonishing has to do with the the audience to whom Peter is writing. He's writing this letter to scattered believers all across the geographic regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I believe these people are predominantly Gentiles. I believe there are Gentile believers scattered all around who come to faith in Christ as they embrace the gospel in the first century. Now, there are some who say, no, that's not the case. These were Jewish Christians. Um, but, you know, as so I looked at things this week and studied them, I think that Peter's are audience is really mostly Gentile. Certainly there are some Jewish believers among them, but I think they're mostly Gentile. And I say this because, a couple of reasons, chapter 1, verse 18, we saw a couple of weeks ago, a month and a half ago, I'm not sure, says that you were redeemed from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. Now, Peter wouldn't use these terms to describe those who have the lineage of the law and the prophets like a Jew would have. The Jews had a great ancestry of their forefathers, and you wouldn't at all call that a feudal way of life. Adherence to the law of Moses, even if it's by name only, by latch, wouldn't, I don't think, match this description of a feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. That's to speak disparagingly about the sin of these people, and, and that's not how... The Bible writers ever speak of Jewish people. And also over in chapter 4, verse 3, you see Peter describing their former manner of life. This is how they lived in general. Okay, It's not everyone is like this, but the majority of these people whom he's writing to live like this. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. So you've already lived in your Gentile flesh and lusts. And how is it they lived? Well, they pursued a course of sensuality, pursued a course of lusts and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and, and abominable idolatries. I mean, that you just can't describe that in toto of all of the Jews. 
It would it wouldn't be typical of your average Jew to be like that. Oh, there may have been some who have gone into such abominations, but for the most part, that's not true of the Jew of the first century. So I think that Peter is writing to those who are for the most part converts from a non-Jewish background. You know, I, I looked at a dozen commentaries this week on First Peter, and all of them agreed on this point, except there was one that didn't. One still thinks they're writing Jewish people, but I think the vast majority of, of those who have uh, common sense, what I would say, think that these are, are Gentile people. And then that gives us reason then to realize how incredible this passage was for us. Because these six descriptions here are a description of God's grace to Gentiles. My first point this morning, as I'm entitled, if you're looking for a hook to hang it on, is uh, embrace His grace. I want you this morning to embrace His grace. Grace is undeserved favor that's come upon us. For 2,000 years of human history, God set His focus upon one nation, the nation of Israel. Others, certainly there were some times like the book of Jonah when He reached out to them. There were people like um, Naaman who were Gentiles who had overflows of His grace. But for the most part, He's looking at one nation, the nation of Israel. But now Peter writes to these predominantly Gentile people, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. You are the people of God. You are mercy receivers. God's favor which was upon Israel has now come upon the church which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And now when God looks down upon us at Rock Valley Bible Church predominantly Gentile. He says, you, Rock Valley Bible Church, is a chosen race. When he looks down at the church in Nepal, he looks upon those Asian people and says, you are a chosen race. When he looks in the Congo, to the African church, he says, you are a chosen race. Different ethnic tribes, different people, different languages, different tongues. God has said, you are all one race. And the race isn't ethnic anymore. The race is now through faith in Christ. It's spiritual. Now, I don't think that this displaces Israel as a unique people. I I still believe there's a future for Israel. You read Romans chapter 11, and Paul writes there that there will be a day when the fullness of Gentiles comes in where all Israel will be saved. There will be a day when the Jews will turn to Christ in massive revival. the, The Jewish Israel nation is the only nation that has this promise of a future revival in their lands. And God has promised that that would be the case. God's not lost His heart for these people. In fact, even throughout all time in the New Jerusalem, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel are going to forever be etched upon the gates of the New Jerusalem. Just to forever remember and honor the tribes of Israel. Precious in God's sight. And we must, as Gentiles, never forget that our, our roots are Jewish roots that sink deep into the Old Testament and they're the ones that support our faith. But Peter's words here now show that God's time um, dealing with people has expanded in his scope to work in the world. No longer is he focusing just on one nation, but now he's focusing to Jew and Gentile alike who share in the inheritance. It's no longer ethnic identity that includes you into the covenant, rather it's faith in Christ that brings you into the Abrahamic covenant. And the New Testament talks a lot about this. 
Paul said this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Listen what he says. Therefore, Paul writes, Be sure that it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who are of faith, the sons of Abraham. Because it says in verse 8 of Galatians 3, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? Through Abraham and through his seed, through his lineage, it's going to be all the nations of the earth will be blessed because particularly the Messiah would come out of the seed of Abraham. So then, Paul says, as if to say, okay, let's, let's secure this. It's those who are of faith who are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And so as we believe in Christ today, non-Jews, we are sons of Abraham. We are blessed with Abraham. It's in Christ that we're recipients of these mighty blessings, but we do receive the blessings of Abraham. And that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What once was spoken to Israel applies here to the church. Now, that's incredible. I hope you can grasp how marvelous this is. And maybe we don't. Maybe because we've always grown up that way. You know, I, I made allusion in my prayer to just the teenagers. You know, we've just grown up that way. This is how life is. I deserve things to be this way. That's not how it was always. In fact, if we would go back and think about what does a, a Gentile person look like uh, 300 B.C. before Christ came. Paul said what they were like. Ephesians 2 verse 12. At that time, you were separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a pretty accurate description. Before the coming of Jesus, the promise of God were to the Jewish people, to the Jewish race, to the chosen race, and anybody outside of that was excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You know, today in our society, we have a problem called illegal immigration. Right? People from other countries coming into our nation, crossing our borders, living among us. They benefit our nation in the sense that they help with labor, but many times they fail to pay taxes and they suck off the social services, freeloading on all of us. It's caused many people to be angry. What are we going to do with these people? These are, you know, they're illegal immigrants and they're coming here. It's a huge political problem. And I don't understand everything. I don't understand the solution. But I just say that in the time of, of before Christ came, if people tried to immigrate into the Jewish nation or into the Jewish commonwealth, um, they, they could. But they would, would never be able to be citizens. Illegal immigrants can, whatever, go through the requirements that they need to do and can be citizens in our, our nation today. But a, a, a good, working, hardworking Gentile who comes into the Israel nation and says, I just love the Jewish people. I love the Jewish God. They can come and they can work hard for the people. They can learn the laws and the customs of the land. They can conform themselves to that. They could support the work of the temple financially. They could be circumcised. They could become model citizens in every single way. And yet, they really wouldn't be citizens. They would be proselytes, never allowed full citizenship into the people. And they'd be reminded of this every time they came to worship. In the Jewish temple area, there was a place 
where the Gentiles could go. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. And there was a, a line. We're not sure how that line was, but there's a line they could never pass to get into the, the Jews. I don't care how devout they were. They could never cross that line. They're always prohibited from going any further. Could you imagine coming to Rock Valley Bible Church and to have some greeters there at the door? Dan Herman greets you at the door and says, um, Excuse me, did, did you grow up in Rockford? You grew up in Rockford, Tom, right? No, you didn't. You know what? You, we just like when you're standing back, okay? You, the seats here are for those who grew up in Rockford, all right? You can just sit there in back. With, thank you very much. And, and that's what you should do. Michelle, you grew up in Rockford, right? You, you can sit. <laughs> Greg, Greg, you stand in back. Could you imagine that? That's what it was like in the New Old Testament time. I don't care how devout you are. I, you could say, I give half my income to Israel. You're still standing in back. That was the situation for the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews were serious about this. Archaeologists have found a stone pillar in the temple area, which was written this. Listen carefully. It says, No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and the enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensued. Pretty serious stuff. So if you're a Gentile, don't come in. Or you only have yourself to blame that you died. In fact, in Acts 21, we saw an example about how, how intent the Jews were keeping the Temple Mount sacred just to the Jews. No proselyte or Gentiles could come in there. In fact, one time they supposed that Paul brought some Gentiles onto the Temple Mount. Now, it was a false accusation. He hadn't done that. But they thought so, and they stirred up the crowd, and, and they grabbed, they laid their hands on Paul. They said, men of Israel, come to our aid. This man, Paul, who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. Besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. In fact, that's the very thing that got him arrested, which bound him in the prison, which then eventually he escaped to Caesarea, and then he appealed to Caesar and then went off to Rome and as tradition has it, was eventually beheaded in Rome because of this accusation. So passionate were they, they need to keep the Temple Mount clean. Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They, they just couldn't get in. And furthermore, even Paul said in Ephesians 2.12 that they had no claim to covenantal promises of the Old Testament. I mean, a, a Jew could pray the promises of God. You know, we sing that song sometimes. I'm not sure we haven't sung it very much. Standing on the promises of Christ my King. You guys familiar with that song? The Jews could sing a song like that. I'm standing on the promises of God. He's given to me. A Gentile could never sing that song because they were excluded from the promises of God. They were without hope that Messiah would come to save them because Messiah had been promised to come and save the Jewish people. They were without God in this world. But then in Christ, it all changed. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are formerly far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You say near to what? Well, brought near to the Jews. Brought near in one body, which is now called the church. And that's what Peter's getting at here in 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is now God's chosen race. Multiple ethnic groups. In fact, it even says in Revelation 5.9 that that great final day there will be 
people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping the Lord. But all of us, I don't care what tribe you come from, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Can you see how incredible these things are? I mean, when when Gentiles first heard this, it was a cause of great rejoicing. In Acts 13, the story is told of uh, how when, when Paul went up to Pisidian, India, Pisidian Antioch, he went up there and he preached the gospel first to the Jews. And the Jews were so interested and they said, hey, why don't you come back again the next day, the next Sabbath? And so there's a stir around the crowd. Everyone's talking about, hey, this guy's preaching here. And what happened in that next Sabbath is everybody in the city showed up. So there you have the Jews in the synagogue and the whole city is there. And when Paul then went to explain this again, the Jews were jealous that all these Gentiles were around hearing this message was just for us. And so they started repudiating and starting saying, no, Paul is false. And so literally what it says in Acts 13 is that Paul said, it was necessary I first speak to you, and since you deem yourselves unworthy, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And we turn to the Gentiles as God has been a light for you all. And do you know what happened on that day when these Jews heard the gospel preached to them? For the first time, thinking it's just to the Jews, and now it's coming to them. There was spontaneous rejoicing. In fact, let me just even read it for you. When it said over in, in Acts 13, it was almost like they were, whoa! And they said, that's incredible! If you want to translate it, that's what they said. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. Why? Because they were just talking about the fact that the promise to the Jews has come to us. We now are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And each and every single one of these descriptions uh, are just packed with um, meaning and insight. They're, They're first applied to Old Testament Israel and then applied to us, as Peter did here. Look at this first one. A chosen race is what he calls them. Chosen race. Referring to Israel as their chosen nation. In fact, many times throughout the scripture, uh, Israel is called my chosen one. Isaiah 44 verse 1. Israel whom I have chosen. Isaiah 45 verse 4. Israel my chosen one. Amos 3 verse 2. You only, Israel, have I chosen among all the families of the earth. God chose to set His... His favor upon Israel. All over the Old Testament. And it all started with Abraham. When when God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, He chose Abraham. There's no reason why Abraham would have been chosen except God delighted to show His grace and favor to Abraham. He made promises to him. He brought him out of the land. And listen to the promise, what God said to Abraham. Total grace. He says, I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God says, this is my covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you and with all your generations after you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And we participate in the Abrahamic covenant through faith in Christ because now we are part of the chosen generation, chosen 
generation, chosen race. As they're about to enter the promised land, Moses reminded Israel. He said, remember Israel. So this is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Gad, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, all those 12 tribes. And then 400 years, and then Moses, all God faithful to them. And then Moses says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's chosen you, Israel, to be a possession of all those people. In fact, the entire Old Testament is a story about God's gracious dealing with one race, the Jewish people that God chose to bless. And now here in chapter 2, verse 9, God expands the scope to include Gentiles. And we are in... And we ought to spontaneously rejoice like they did in Pisidian Antioch when that news first came to them. Because it's through faith in Christ that all ethnic diversities are removed. This is why racism, black-white tensions, is so abominable to God. Because it's every nation of everybody who believes in Christ is one. In fact, that's what Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says. There's neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's look at these next three phrases. I want to take them together because they often appear in the Scriptures together. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In Exodus 19, just before Moses was to receive the law on Mount Sinai, the Lord said this, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, here it is, my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter's just quoting from Exodus chapter 19. And they all describe God's perspective of the nation of Israel, and then Peter takes them and transfers them to the church, applies them to the church. And we can do the same. We can look at this first one, a royal priesthood. Israel was a royal priesthood. Now, it didn't mean everybody in Israel was a priest, but what it meant is that, that overall, Israel as a nation would act as a priest to all the nations of the earth. And, and I think that the way you understand that is that, um, that in the sense that a priest is the one that provides access to God, access to God would be through the nation Israel. So if you had a Gentile person want to preach the, the glories of God, it would be through Israel because Israel was the one to whom God spoke. I mean, all of the prophets, I think, well, maybe there's an exception, but they're Jewish, right? They all came, the, the mouth, the word of God came through the nation of Israel that would go out. And so in that sense, as they brought people to God, that was the Israel nation. And now us, that's who we are. We are a kingdom of priests. And there's a lost and dying world out there. We are the ones that go to God. And they come to God in some sense through us. I mean, we quickly put it through Christ. But we are priests in the sense that we draw them and show them who God is. That's what I think this means, that they're a kingdom of priests. It's through us that they hear the gospel. Because we have that message, because we are the priests. As it says in Malachi chapter 2, the, the words of a priest should preserve knowledge. Right? We should speak forth what's there, and so the people can then see God through us. Well, this next one a people for God's own possession. Throughout the Old Testament, um, I'm sorry, I missed one, right? A holy nation. Let's talk about that one. I mean, one of the great purposes of giving the law was to teach Israel how to live. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be pure people. 
The law taught the people how it was to live before God, given rules and regulations, and primarily to set them apart from the other nations. And God was very clear how to live. The Old Testament gave the Ten Commandments, very clear how to live. Gave all these laws about slaves and sundry laws and how to act with this and how to deal with somebody who, who's wronged you and these kind of things, fights and murders and everything. The social law was set in place how it is that you ought to act. And one of the ways in which they ought to act is that they're supposed to keep separate. That's what holy means. Holy means separate. And when they came into the land, they were supposed to be different and distinct from all the people. Their, their clothing was to be different. Their food was to be different. Their worship was to be different. Everything was to be different. They were to make no covenant with those in the land. They weren't to intermarry with those people. Why? Because you're a holy people to the Lord your God. Their behavior was to be different. And it's coming to the church as well as believers in Christ. We're to be holy. We're to be different than those in the world. In fact, Peter already mentioned that. Chapter 1, verse 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. And when the church fails to be holy, they bring great shame upon the name of God. It says in Peter's second epistle, talking in chapter 2 about false prophets who have arisen, living sinful lives, professing right to, to be followers of God, yet living sinful lives. Here's what happens to the, the hoi polloi, the common people. It says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. As people follow in sensuality, professing Christ with their mouth, living something else in their life, the way of truth is defiled, is maligned. That's why we're called to be a holy nation. Because an unholy life brings shame to God's name. Because He calls us to be different. That's what we're called to be. Well, let's look at this last phrase. One last phrase here in verse 9. A people for God's own possession. This is who we are now. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, I was shocked by this. But the number of times where this very phrase is used. It's used in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. You are holy people to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So look, you got all these people and, and God takes Israel and He says, You are my possession. You are mine. I've got you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to keep you. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. That's what Isaiah 43 verse 1 says. He would protect them. It says in Deuteronomy 32 that Israel was the apple of God's eye. Right? That, the very sensitive part. If you, if you strike Israel, it's like you're striking God in the eye. He's going to react and get defensive and protect His eye. He's going to protect Israel. Israel was a treasured possession. Deuteronomy 26, verse 18. And Israel as such was to find their refuge under the shadow of God's wings in His arms to be protected there. God says, do not fear for I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And now that's God's attitude towards all who trust in Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said? I'll take them into my hand and nobody can take them out of my hand. Remember that? Christ Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deeds and to purify people for Himself. A people for His own possession. We're Christ's treasured possession as He grabs us and He keeps us. And what are we supposed to do? 
We're supposed to trust Him then in all things. He's holding us up. We are supposed to, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. He cares for us because we are His possession. And then two other descriptions down here in verse 10 are no less remarkable, no less incredible. It says, You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. At one time, we were not the people of God. We, we just weren't. Israel was the people of God, but now through the work of Christ, we can be called by God His people. Before Christ had come, we were no mercy people. We were people upon whom the judgment of God was coming. But now that Christ has come, as we've embraced Him by faith, we've become mercy people, receiving that which we don't deserve. I mean, can you even imagine what life would be like to continue in the darkness of your sin? You know, so many of you have been redeemed for so long, you don't even think about what it used to be like. But those who remember and who are on the brink of remembering what it was like, remember. And that's where we all need to be. I'm just telling you, embrace the grace. Embrace the grace. Right? Seek to understand His grace. And when you understand it, rejoice in it. Because it's glorious. It's incredible. Well, here's my next point this morning. The last half of verse 9. Point number two, proclaim His fame. So I want to embrace His grace. I want to proclaim His fame. That's all what this is about. This is talking about application to our mouth. This is the purpose of why God has given this grace to us. It is so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God shows grace to us so that we speak. Right? That's the flow of Peter's argument here. He says, God has brought some incredible, unbelievable blessings into your life. He has given you the promises that He initially gave to Israel. He's brought you out of a dark and hopeless situation. He's brought you into light. He's given you a hope beyond all hopes. And your role now is to simply tell others how precious God is. It's almost as if Peter is saying, this is the natural thing to do. Let's go back to that's incredible. I'm picturing a show, who knows, Wednesday night, Thursday night, who knows, whenever it was. This, this show was on, and then the next day at work, you've got several co-workers around, and they say, hey, did you see That's Incredible last night? And they said, yeah, I saw it. He said, man, I, I just couldn't believe that that guy folded his body parts like that and fit himself inside a little box. And uh, another guy said, well, I, I thought that was pretty impressive. But what I thought was really impressive was that guy took that motorcycle and jumped over three helicopters with their blades rotating. Now that takes guts. I thought that was incredible. And, and then another one says, well, those were good, but I really liked the story of the, the, the boy who was, um, had brain damage, had some mental retardation, and, and then got glaucoma and went blind. But then they discovered how, how well he was musically gifted. And now he can hear something and play it on the piano just exactly. That was amazing. I really liked that. And they had these conversations. And I'm sure that in the 1980s, there were conversations like this that took place in workplaces all across America after people watched this television show. And why did these conversations take place? 
because the people were captivated by what it was that they saw. And they're going to argue what they think was the best part of the show. It wasn't difficult for these people to speak about. They, they found it stirring. They said, wow, you know, that, that daredevil who jumped over the helicopters, right? Gave them, you know, whatever, a, a highest. Their heart was beating and their pulse was pounding. They said, whoa, what's going to happen? And stirred them in excitement. And so they could talk about it naturally. And that's what God calls us to do regarding our salvation. God has so lavished His grace and His blessings upon us in Christ that He wants us to say, that's incredible. Let me tell you what I have experienced by faith in Christ. He wants for us to speak out of an overflow, right? Look at what verse 9 says. He says, he talks about how God has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's something every believer has experienced. At one point, you're walking in darkness, and He's called you then to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, to walk in those ways, to see forgiveness of sins, to understand this grace that opens your eyes, to turn from your sinful ways, to serve a living and true God. And in so doing, as you've done that, you've found that God is more lovely than you ever dreamed imaginable. And we ought to be so amazed what took place in our salvation that we can't help but to speak. I mean, think about what took place in the early church. The religious leaders tried to muzzle the apostles by commanding them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, even threatening them with punishment if they did. Remember what Peter and John said? He said, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's it's not possible for us to stop. We've seen what we've seen, and we and we're going to talk. We're going to speak forth. They couldn't restrain themselves from speaking about Jesus when they'd witnessed through the life of Jesus. It was so incredible they couldn't contain themselves. They were so bold in their convictions, even with punishment being threatened, that they went out and they preached anyway, publicly about the Christ in the temple area again and again the Sanhedrin had them arrested and brought them and said, didn't we tell you not to talk anymore? And Peter said, the very one who wrote this epistle, by the way, he said, we must obey God rather than men. Even the flogging didn't stop their speaking. After they were flogged and whipped, they went forth from that place rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And it says the very next verse, Acts 5.42, Every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. You couldn't shut these guys up. They kept going and going. Commands and orders couldn't shut them up. Threatens of punishment couldn't shut them up. Punishment couldn't shut them up. They were simple fishermen who transformed by the power of God gave strong testimony for His gospel. And what changed them? They'd witnessed the incredible. They'd witnessed Jesus of Nazareth, who God appointed with the Holy Spirit, with power. And and they witnessed how Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And they witnessed how His death and resurrection redeemed them. And they were on a crusade to make Him known because of the power which had changed their life. And, And I would contend today that our difficulties in evangelism have less to do with training and methodology and have more to do with the impact that Christ has made on our lives than anything else. Now, I'm not against evangelistic training. Not at all. But 
speaking boldly about Christ, I think has more to do about you grasping the grace that is yours in Christ. And if you grasping the the marvels of what Christ has done for your own soul than it does with any technique. You can teach a salesman how to sell a product. But I think probably the most effective salesman is the neighbor who uses the product, who has found that product to be so helpful that that neighbor just talks about the product all the time. And when we find our happiness and our joy and our contentment in Jesus Christ, we just talk about it all the time. It's far better than any sales technique. A few weeks ago, I showed the first half of a video put out by Voice of the Martyrs about eight average teenagers from Australia and America who went over and brought Bibles to Vietnam and witnessed the persecuted church firsthand. They spoke of those who were beaten and imprisoned for their faith. And they witnessed how believers had to kind of gather in secret with a constant threat that the police could shut them down. We witnessed how these people, these people in Vietnam, sacrifice that it takes to receive any training at all. And yet, these Vietnamese people aren't shy about their faith. Oh, they're careful because they know if they speak wrongly, they could be imprisoned or beaten, as some of them have been over there. But they understand what the Lord has done for their souls. And they make great sacrifices and do whatever. We saw this first half of this video, this youth camp, where several kids to attend this youth camp traveled for, for days to get to this place. And so I'm asking the teenagers of the church body to come this Wednesday evening. We're going to show the second half of that video. I want to rock your world. That's what I want to do. It's you guys, Tyler and Nick and Mason and Jeb. Eric Tool. Sorry, you can get the video later. I want you guys to come to see what's about. How is it these Vietnamese people who know so less of the Bible than you do, how it is that they can speak forwardly so boldly? I think it's because they understand they've been taken out of darkness and brought into light. They've embraced this experience they have. And when Peter speaks here, it's interesting about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. He's talking aesthetic language. He's talking beauty language. He's talking wonder language, right? He, he's talking, right, you see the Mona Lisa and you just say, wow. He's saying, I want you to tell the world about the Mona Lisa painting or the Michelangelo David. I want you to tell the world about just how aesthetic and pleasing and delightful God is. It's not the facts here about God. We should broadcast that Peter's talking about here, though we need to do that. But Peter's talking here about the beauty of Christ that should come forth from our mouth. It's not so much here about the greatness and grandeur of God. It's upon uh, the experienced kindness of God that we have experienced in Christ. The emphasis here is upon the loveliness of Jesus. Peter tells us to tell the world why we have found Jesus so attractive. Speaking forth His excellencies. Because we've experienced Jesus to be sweet to our souls. And we just speak it out. Right? That song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Just to take Him at His word. Just to rest upon His promise. And to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I've trust Him. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. 
Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. And that's what He's telling us to, to speak forth here in this verse. Just speak of His excellencies. We've experienced the gospel firsthand. We want to tell others of what it's like. Embrace the grace that's yours. And then proclaim His fame. He's brought you out of darkness. He's taking you into His marvelous light. So go and tell the world. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And God is redeemed from the hand of the adversary. In other words, as God has redeemed you, you say the same thing back. You say, the Lord is good. Give thanks to the Lord. His loving kindness is everlasting. Right? Because those who have been redeemed know about it in their hearts. They've experienced it and they're just supposed to say that. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 66, verse 16, Come and hear, all you who fear God. I will tell you of what He has done for my soul. That's what Peter's telling us to proclaim. When Mary had been visited by the angel, she merely said forth all the mighty things that God had done for her. In fact, that's what the Magnificat is. It's Mary's expression of the excellencies of God in showing His favor towards her. And I do believe that when you come to embrace the grace, it's there in Christ that you will proclaim His fame. I just, you will. So, understand His grace and embrace it and see what these things are. I, I love the illustration given in 2 Kings chapter 7. Israel is under attack by the Arameans. These Arameans are surrounding the city. We don't know what city it is, but they're surrounding the city and they're starving them out. And then there's four lepers out here on the outside of the gates and they're just thinking, oh, what should we do? There's famine inside the city. If we go in there, we're just going to die. If we sit right here, we're going to die. So let's at least go to the camp of the Arameans. We're going to die anyway. If they kill us, so be it. That's what we're going to do. And so they went to the camp of the Arameans. And do you remember what happened? The Lord had caused them to hear these chariots. And they said, oh, the, the people of Israel have hired foreign nations to come and fight against us. Let's go. And that night they split and they took off, leaving everything in the camp. So these, these lepers, scared to death, come into the camp. And what they find? They found the camp with everything in there. So they entered a tent. They said, oh, they raided the refrigerator, right? And, and they started eating, right? It's like me going over the cross house. They're raiding the refrigerator and having all those Mexican tamales and everything there and eating the rice and eating it all up. And then they took away the gold and the silver and the clothes and they took them away and they hid them. And then they went into another tent and did the same thing and they hid them. And then they stopped themselves and said, wait a minute. What we're not doing, what we're doing is not right. Today is a day of good news. We must go back and tell it and proclaim it. And that's what they did. They went back into the city and they proclaimed what was taking place there. In the day of good news, they were keeping silent. And they weren't supposed to do that. They were supposed to, to speak it forth. And so they told the king and the king went and they looked and Israel was delivered from the Arameans because these lepers spoke forth what they had experienced. And our mouths simply must open and tell of our, our Savior. And you know what? It really doesn't matter who you, who you talk to. It's all going to be used by God. Think about this. If you are one who just speaks forth the, the, the mighty preciousness of God, what, what's happening in your soul at that time? You're worshiping, right? Speaking forth the marvels of Christ. What happens to, to unbelievers 
when you speak forth that way? You're evangelizing them, right? Because they're hearing about the great things of God. And saying, oh, I don't have a love like that. I don't have a heart like that. This guy's got something else that I don't have. And what about when you say that in the congregation, what happens? You're discipling people because they're being edified and they're being encouraged and they're being taught how it is to speak forth of the excellencies of Christ. Maybe say, Steve, you know what? I'm not able to do this. I, I can't. Well, let me ask you this. Have there ever been things in your life that you're so excited about you can't talk about anything else? Maybe you built something and you want to show it to others. Maybe you found some type of deal at some flea market last weekend and you want to show people the deal you've made. Maybe your son or daughter is some star athlete and you want to have everyone come and see their basketball games. Or your children are involved in a performance. You want to come and see the performance. Or maybe you've made some huge sales at work and God has abounded you and you've got this bonus that comes home from your boss. What are you going to say to your wife? Oh, honey, look at what took place. You're so excited. Can you talk about that? I think you can. Maybe you're a hunter and you bag a 10-point buck. right? You put him on the wall so anyone who comes in, you can talk all about this buck. Is it difficult to talk about these things? It's not. Why? Because you've experienced it and you're excited about it. And I would say that so also with Christ. If you experienced it and you're excited about it, you'll be able to talk about it. Anything about it. Now, if you have difficulty, it may be because you haven't experienced God's grace in your life. Or maybe because you haven't fully embraced how great this grace was. But if you've tasted the Savior, you should have plenty to say. If you say, well, what should I say? Well, how about verse 10? Verse 10 is a good outline of what to say. You say, uh, there was a time where I wasn't a part of God's family. I was off and doing my own thing. <laughs> oh, but the Lord was gracious to me. He brought me into His fold. He made me one of His chosen one, And now I'm one of His people. I transgressed and sinned against Him but He's forgiven it all. Not because I've earned it, but sheer mercy of Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. You could start there. Proclaim that there in verse 10. That will do fine. <laughs> Receive mercy. God has been so gracious to me. I'm, I'm now His child. I'm part of the people of God. You can do that. Or you can speak further about the excellencies of Christ. I mean, just think about the excellencies of Christ. It's in Christ Jesus all our transgressions are forgiven. Christ Jesus paid for our sins upon the cross, thereby thoroughly washing us from our iniquity and cleansing us from our sin. In Christ, we receive all of His righteousness. We stand before the judgment seat of God someday. Jesus will be our defense attorney arguing our case before the Father. He's the one that diverted the wrath of God from us. In Christ Jesus, we face no condemnation. We face the prospect of zero condemnation. We have no reason to fear the judgment because perfect love for God casts out all fear. In Christ, we've been made alive to God. He's raised us up 
and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Christ Jesus, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ is preparing a place for us in heaven that we will enjoy undeservingly forever. Someday we'll fully realize the glory that's to be revealed to us. And that day we'll take part in being a a fully realized kingdom and priests to our God. We will be fellow heirs of the kingdom with Jesus Christ as if we are brothers inheriting the kingdom of God. Until that time, Jesus is continually praying for us. And with any care and concern, we simply need to draw near to Him and we'll receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. I mean, these are some of the excellencies of Christ. Ephesians 1.3 sums it up as best I know how. I really want to end here my message this morning before we transition to the Lord's Supper, which is an opportunity to proclaim His excellencies to all of us here. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that there is to give, that God has opened His hands to give, is in Christ and is ours. You cannot name a spiritual blessing that God is is holding back and has not given to us. They are all ours in Christ Jesus. And the amazing thing is we earned none of them. And the amazing thing on top of that is that God never promised them to us in the first place. It was shadowed through Abraham the gospel will be preached to all the nations. right? But it wasn't clear. But now in Christ Jesus it becomes as clear as can be because we now are a chosen race of royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I'm just going to ask you, are you going to proclaim His fame? Are you going to proclaim His fame? There's every reason in this text to do that. And I simply say, this is incredible. It's incredible. Grasp how incredible it is, and you're not going to be able to stop talking about it. Let's pray, and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper.